This is Truth Jihad Radio, questioning official stories since 2006. Please subscribe by way of the Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett doing the live special edition of this show from an undisclosed location deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. Just finished a great conversation with Rashid Daoud and Martin Hill, a couple of long-haul truckers talking about the Ottawa Freedom Convoy and whether it might happen here, as well as other issues related to that, the pushback against unfreedom, which is coming down on us everywhere you look. Now we're going to move on to another flashpoint, and that's the Ukraine. Ken Meyercord has done all kinds of excellent work on Washington, D.C., uh, cable access TV, talking back to the the power brokers of D.C. Uh, quite eloquently. And he just put out an interesting uh, email or report or blog post or what have you on the false flag warnings that are being issued around Ukraine. That's right. It's now it's not it's not me and Alex Jones and, and people like that who are saying a false flag alert, red alert, false flag. coming. No, now it's the U.S. government that's telling us that there is a red alert for a false flag. Only they're not admitting that they're the ones who are probably going to do it. Oh, no, it's got to be the Russians. You got to blame the Russians for everything these days. Just about everything. You can blame the Chinese or the Iranians every now and then, too. And Ken uh, <laughs> points out that it isn't just the Russians who built up troops there. The Ukrainians have, too. And so he, uh, I thought, put out a very insightful little balanced piece on that. So, hey, let's talk about it. Welcome, Ken Meyercourt. How are you, Ken? I'm good. How are you? Can you hear me? Yeah, you're coming through loud and clear. Good to hear Excellent. you. So what, what, what's this with the American mainstream media and the American government suddenly going wild, uh, issuing false flag alerts? I, I never thought I'd see the day. I know. They accuse us of all sorts of things when we point out false, false flags. But uh, I guess we've had some influence on them. Yeah, they're, they're stealing <laughs> our stuff. Yeah, they're stealing. That's a good way to put it. We should sue him for copyright infringement. There you go. Yeah, no, well, I, I, I try to copyright false flag weekly news and, and make sure every time everybody says the word false flag, they have to put a nickel in my jar, but it hasn't worked so far. <laughs> Would have made you a rich man. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Would have gotten some of your taxes back even. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so what's... Well, well what's I'd say... One side it, of, go ahead, tell Yeah, I... Uh, you know, it's, it is amazing that they're accusing the government, uh, the Russians of possible a false flag. And it occurred to me, uh, you know, in, in that email I sent out today, I, I had just read uh, that the Ukrainians have 150,000 troops and, and uh, other, I guess, uh, volunteers, uh, Blackwater. <laughs> What's Black Academy? It's called now Blackwater. Yeah, they keep changing their name to, to avoid war crimes prosecutions. It's like the, the criminal keeps changing his name. You know? I can't. I can't believe they could get out of it that easy. Anyway, there's supposed to be uh, Ukrainian troops uh, on on the border with uh, the Donbass, those two breakaway republics. And it occurred to me that well, maybe that's what this is all about. That's what. Res- uh, what caused the the Russians to uh, put their troops on the Russian side of that of those two republics, and the false flag issue could be uh, that uh, we are planted. Well, the Ukrainians, <laughs> the Ukrainians don't seem to be quite as enthusiastic about it as we are. Uh, but uh, the, together, we would be uh, uh, committing aggression against the uh, Donbass republics. And by uh, spreading this idea of the 
uh, Russians uh, um, performing, executing a false flag, if we did do that, when we, when our side attacked uh, the Donbass, the Russians would have to hesitate in, in responding uh, because it would look like, uh, oh, that was their false flag that caused the Russians to, it might, it might give, it wouldn't give much advantage to the, the attackers, but uh, a few hours, a day, whatever. <laughs> well, well, the idea That's, is just to blame Russia for anything that happens. It's always the Russians' fault. They were the ones who must have attacked. And if it looks like it was the Ukrainians who attacked, oh, no, that was just a Russian false flag. It's always the Russians' fault. Well, I, I, what's uh, what's baffled me uh, all for the last six months or so with this uh, Ukraine thing is what has provoked the current uh, tension I mean, uh, the, since the, the Maidan coup in 2014 uh, and the uh, seceding of, of the Donbass republics and the, uh, and the Crimea from the Ukraine, it's, it would seem there's sort of a status quo, but that status quo seems to have changed. I'm not sure, is it because uh, we are uh, about to uh, uh, invite uh, Ukraine into NATO uh, is it because the Ukrainian regime is is in trouble? Um, uh, things aren't working out quite as as well as the Ukrainian people had hoped. Uh, wh- what is it that's uh, um, that's motivating all this tension right now? And certainly, if uh, the, the Ukrainian government has to, if it you know it claims the Donbass, that's still part of Ukraine in their opinion, and uh, it's a little bit of an embarrassment to them that. Uh, uh, th- those independent republics exist, as well as the Crimea. They still claim the Crimea. Um, so I don't know whether they have in mind to invade those uh, republics uh, or the Crimea or both, uh, but that would certainly explain the current tensions if they did. And we're, you know, we're arming them to the teeth uh, as if uh, uh, um, something's about to happen. <laughs> Well, yeah, as you point out in your piece, that area uh, is the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, Donbass. That's a, a war zone. It already is. There's, there's I, kind yeah, of I didn't realize I started re- researching it uh, th- th- just today for, after your call that that's, you know, there are, what, a couple of hundred incidents every day over there. People shooting at each other, bombs going off, uh, artillery being fired, uh, encroachments on one side of the border or the other. I had no idea it was, and of course, this is all being monitored by the OSCE, uh, which I've got written down someplace what it means. <laughs> Can't reel it off off the top of my head anyway. It's, it's Organization just, for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Thank you very much, which has 57 parties to it, countries in Asia, Europe, North America. I assume we're a part of that. Uh, but they've got a, they've had a monitoring mission in Ukraine for what, since uh, probably since 2014 almost, and they're the ones who report all these uh, uh, incidents that take place, and it's, you wouldn't want to be living near that border right now. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. I think that what's going on here is not that the Russians are planning to invade Ukraine with their 200,000 troops, it's that the Ukrainians are, they, they've publicly announced they don't accept the secession of any of these entities. Uh, and, of course, the biggest one is Crimea, and the Americans and NATO don't accept that either. You know, the whole point of Victoria Nuland uh, overthrowing the democratically elected government of Ukraine and installing a Ukro-Nazi coup regime was to put a U.S. base in Crimea. And 
the uh, Russians nixed that. The people of Crimea, who were majority Russian-speaking, nixed that. And the Ukrainians and NATO are not happy with that. So they, they don't accept it. So, so Ukraine with the, you know, being, is being goaded by, uh, the hawks, the neocon hawks, uh, that have a big say in NATO to take it back. So that's well, what, why they, they put those 150,000 Ukrainian troops right up there on the border. And then Russia put their, their troops on the border to try to dissuade the Ukrainians from coming in and massacring the Russian speaking people yeah. in those areas. So I think that's what's actually happening. Isn't, isn't it a beautiful irony that Victoria Newland, Newland, who during the Maidan revolution, uh, in that conversation with the American ambassador to, uh, the Ukraine, uh, the, when he expressed the, uh, uh, the idea that the Europeans would not necessarily go along with what we had in mind for Ukraine in, in terms of the new government. Uh, she said, fuck the EU. Um, this was on yeah, a she'll, she'll be remembered for that quote. What? Probably not. She'll probably be remembered mostly for that quote. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what. Uh, who else? So, yeah. And, but now she's our, our front man in trying to get the Europeans to go along with our idea of uh, uh, doing something with regard to Russia after she told him to go fuck off uh, just a few years ago. And the big picture here, of course, is that NATO has been relentlessly pushing eastward and putting first strike nuclear systems right up closer and closer to Moscow. And one of the issues that's just arisen that's led to this tension is that Moscow has issued an ultimatum saying uh, this far, but no further. This is a red line saying no, you know, no more uh, NATO countries, uh, you know, no, no new NATO countries on Russia's border. Uh, and they reminded the Americans and NATO that they were promised that NATO would not move one inch eastward when the Cold War was resolved. And that promise was soon broken. And they are not any more willing to tolerate these increasingly uh, rapid and accurate uh, first strike nuclear systems right there five minutes from Moscow anymore then the Americans would be willing to tolerate first strike nuclear systems right there up on the Canadian border, you know, uh, two minutes from New York. Uh, so that's really the, the big issue here is that the, I, the American side is going. It's a geopolitical move uh, against Russia. I didn't realize until I again did some research today that uh, NATO has, has added 13 countries to NATO since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I can't recite them all, the, but yeah, that's all insane because all, the whole purpose of NATO was to try to stop the spread of communism and the enlargement of the, the Iron Curtain. And there is no more Iron Curtain and there is no more communism there. So NATO should dissolve. But, but yeah, it should have been dissolved years ago. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, the, you know, one thing, during, even during the Cold War, I often wondered um, whether it was over ideology, communism versus capitalism, or it's just standard old uh, nation-state rivalry. And now yeah. there's no communism in, in Russia. There is in China, for sure. But uh, and, it, and yet we're, <laughs> we've got the same enemies we did during the Cold War. Uh, and it's uh, not uh, an ideological, even with China, we, we, we convince ourselves that, oh, they've gone capitalist. That's why they're so su successful. Um, so it would appear that even the Cold War... Uh, <laughs> It was a question of uh, a geopolitics, uh, national rivalries, uh, rather than ideology. After all, we, we allied ourselves with the communists during World War II. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the, you know, the kind of realist school of geopolitical analysis. Exactly. Machiavelli. Says, yeah, yeah. They, they say 
that like you know Brzezinski is actually a pretty good introduction to this. If you read Brzezinski's oh, yeah. books like The Grand Chessboard, you'll see that there is this history of people, you know, Mackinder and so on, uh, talking about how the, uh, the the geographical position of these countries determines sort of which game they're going to play with each other to try to maximize their own position, their own wealth and power. And, you know, right now we're in a bizarre situation where the, by far the biggest concentration of wealth, of, of human beings, of resources is the Eurasian continent. And some would say that would even include uh, much of Africa as, you know, because Mediterranean is yeah. not really that big of a barrier. So there's this supercontinent, you know, Eurasia and yeah. arguably Africa that includes by far the vast majority of uh, of people and resources and production. And then we have this island, uh, North America, which is, yeah, let's say, you know, America is a little bigger than, than England, which was this little tiny island that ruled the world for a long time. But it's this little island of North America is ruling the world by the same process that the British did before, which is mainly sea power and then supplemented with air power. And now we're seeing some changes, including the ability to target ships with these super fast and deadly missiles so that naval warfare will soon be a thing of the past. Navies are turning into sitting ducks and we're seeing the Eurasian continent beginning to unite. And the, the game has been the great game has always been that the 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 periphery countries, the islands like like Britain and now the United States, uh, is these countries have to try to prevent Eurasia from uniting. And so it's been a divide and conquer game. Uh, the world wars involve divide and conquer like Germany and Russia, of course, were the two big threats to unite Eurasia. And today the idiot American leadership has driven the Russians and the Chinese together. So Eurasia is uniting and, uh, and that's not acceptable. Well, the so, Asian side of it anyway. Yeah. That, yeah. I have a sort of funny story about, since you mentioned Zabrinsky, uh, you know, um, uh, Brzezinski, excuse me, uh, that uh, be, in pre-pandemic times, I would go to uh, events at the think tanks here in Washington. And uh, the, for the point of not hearing from the foreign par- policy establishment, because I knew what they were going to say, uh, but to ask provocative questions in the Q&A. And one time I was at one of the leading, um, best funded, biggest uh, for I, I would just do this on foreign policy, and, and I went to uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and they were having a sort of uh, honor Zbigniew Brzezinski event. He was up there with the head of the CSIS on the podium, and they were uh, he was this was he had retired by this time, probably pretty close to his death, uh, and he was getting all these softball questions from the audience. Um, and so when I, I, unfortunately, I got a reputation at these places. <laughs> Sometimes I can't get called on to ask a question. Yeah, they they know you now. They, they yeah, raise some your of hand, them do. This, this guy didn't because he called on me, uh, the president of the thing, and, and I asked Brzezinski whether he was proud of having initiated the practice of arming uh, Islamic extremists. And he didn't get it at first. He mumbled something about Algeria, and I, I said, no, in, in Afghanistan, because, you know, he was the one that started uh, sending arms to the Mujahideen. <laughs> and when I when I clarified it, the, the, the president of the outfit immediately said, oh, next question, please. <laughs> so he didn't. Yeah. 
I never did find out whether he was proud of that. Well, uh, of course, he, he did admit like, to Lamond that he was proud of it. Exactly. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, he he told Lamond that. Well, uh, I, well, yeah, you know, and, and well, the he communists. Was, yeah, he so much more yeah, important than a few stirred up about it. Yeah, yeah. I started the uh, uh, Islamic extremist in business in in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. A good friend of mine uh, is the one who uh, publicized that. William Bloom, did you ever know Bill? Oh yeah, sure. I I, I had uh, William Bloom on this radio show many times. Oh good, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Like, we used to argue about nine eleven. He was like, he was kind of halfway convinced of nine eleven truth, but he wouldn't, yeah. he wouldn't quite go all the way. No, no, definitely, yeah. Uh, but he was a good guy. Yeah, he uh, was great. I used to call him a thinking man's Chomsky, <laughs> and with a better wit too. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's like you know his 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 talking about was bit. a little bit like Chomsky's, only he was he was better. We should give a plug for uh, Bill's. Uh, uh, seminal work, uh, Killing Hope. Oh, yeah. U.S. Great CIA book. and military interventions since World War II. It's a bit dated now, but it's still a great read. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those key books on the what we might call exactly. the American was, Holocaust. Uh, yeah, he was one of the first uh, before, I mean, there lots of people, you and I, uh, are poking holes in the, the common understanding of what we're up to in the world, but uh, he was uh, an early one, along with a couple of defectors from the CIA and others you know the last interview i did with william bloom was right after i guess it had been reported that osama bin laden was collect you know had had william bloom's books on his bookshelf oh yeah in his compound and he also had david ray griffin's 9-11 truth book supposedly too so uh anyway i brought on him <laughs> to ask how he, how he felt about this news that his you know osama bin laden was was one of his big fans and of course we had a few well, laughs over that well, he did, he didn't end up laughing because he was no he would uh, a large part of his income was speaking engagements at the universities and whatnot. And after that came out, those dried up. Yeah, well, that's wouldn't of course, that was probably the purpose, which which you know means like I mean the whole thing was probably a, a cheap uh, publicity stunt. Uh, this okay, let you know we're going to make up this story that we killed Bin Laden, and then let's what else we're going to what other details we're going to throw in. Well, let's say Bin Laden had a library. Who should we smear? You know, who should we say that Bin Laden liked to read? Oh, let's say he liked to read uh, William Bloom and David well, Griffin. <laughs> that actually occurred before. Well, it, it occurred before uh, Bin Laden was officially. Uh, pronounced dead. I, I think you're aware that I I think he died in Tora Bora in 2001 and not in Islamabad in, uh, or Abbottabad in uh, 2011, but that's uh, another story. Yeah, I think you're probably right, and that's what David Ray Griffin thinks too, so it's actually kind of amusing. That I the probably CIA, got the idea from him. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah, CIA would tell us that, that bin Laden is, is reading this guy, David Ray Griffin, who wrote the book uh, Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive, arguing that the evidence suggests bin Laden died back in 2001. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. And and also of course Bin Laden is, you know, officially blamed for 9/11 even though he never uh took any uh credit for it. And so having David Ray Griffin's New Pearl Harbor in Bin Laden's library is also, you know, a kind of a nice touch, but I imagine they you know these the people that made this script up, you know, the psychological operations people who invented this whole BS story of killing Bin Laden and finding yeah. books in his library. Yeah. You know, they must have been sort of, you know, chuckling uh, gleefully, as, as with Duper's delight, as they came up with this idea of putting, you know, Bloom's and Griffin's books in Bin Laden's library. What, oh, what is uh, Griffin doing these days? I haven't seen his stuff of late. You know, he he's been putting out books, uh, including some theology books, every now and then, and I think he's probably still working on. Last I, I just heard from him like a week or two ago. 
he he just emailed me briefly, you know, because he liked my uh, parody. I, I I did that uh, parody article on uh, the vaccine against uh, against free will. You know, like uh, they're going to issue a mandatory uh, vaccination against free will. So it was like a sort of a philosophical piece, but it was more of a you know a satirical humor right. piece or a parody, yeah. right? Anyway, he really liked it. So uh, so that's uh, that's a, I hadn't heard from him for a while before that. And, uh, I'd love to get him on the radio again. He doesn't, he doesn't do radio interviews anymore. He, he, he apparently thinks just fine, but his tongue doesn't catch up with his thoughts as well as oh, he used to. So he's doing it. Do you know how old he is? Yeah, I'm probably older than he is. Really? Uh, he's, well, he's, he's, I don't know exactly, but he's, he's gotta be, you know, pushing 80 probably. Uh, well, he into his 80s. I don't know. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, oh, I want, <laughs> a sort of, uh, Another semi-humorous event I had at a think tank was when I, uh, oh boy, here goes a, uh, old person's, uh. Oh, you're having a senior moment now. Losing, yeah, I'm having a senior moment right now. What was I about to mention? Yeah, this is what, for uh, yeah, oh, I mentioned that. Uh, in it 10 was years, on, we're all going to be talking like this with senior moments. It was moments on, yeah. Well, yeah. Whether we're old or not. What, uh, it was, it was on Bin Laden and Al Qaeda and, and I mentioned in the Q&A that the, the shortest lived job in, in the world is being number two in Al Qaeda, you know, because we were always killing off the number two man. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, they just, now they just killed off the ISIS uh, leader, I guess, didn't they? And that's what I was going to relate it to. Was he a number two? Is Baghdadi still alive? I don't, well, no, they were, supposedly they already got Baghdadi. Okay. But this so, guy so was not. Was, this guy was number one. He was number one? Okay. So Living with his family in, in uh, the suburbs of some town in Syria. Amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, this whole war on terror nonsense just goes on and on and on. You know, it never stops. And uh, <laughs> it it has slowed down a little bit, though, I noticed. Uh, well, they, like, they, yeah. they had to justify our continued presence in Syria, of course. Right. And, our, right. And, and, and Iraq, too, for that matter. Do you think uh, we're going to be withdrawing from Iraq anytime soon? Well, if the Iraqis have anything to say about it, we will. But well, they're they're getting they have been saying something about it. Even the you know the everybody except even the president of Iraq yeah. these days, um, he yeah. was going to he was going to give it. We were supposed to be out by the end of last year, I think, except for like twenty five hundred advisors, and the um, militants in Iraq told him, uh, no, no, we want them all out. And obviously, we didn't even get down to 2,500 by the end of the year. So they started lobbing um, rockets into the green zone, and and I understand they're they've actually they're actually attacking convoys in in southern Iraq, American convoys. We may not be hearing about casualty figures uh, these days, but you know they <laughs> it would if. Uh, I don't know whether Biden uh, thinks of Iraq in the same terms of Afghanistan. We've been there for 20 years. Uh, maybe it's time to get out. Well, you know, officially, people like Biden and uh, Obama recognized that the Iraq war was an even bigger mistake than Afghanistan. Of course, Obama famously said that uh, Afghanistan uh, was not a mistake, that Iraq was. And and that's kind of what the way a lot of uh, Democrats well, saw he should it. be anxious. He should be anxious to rectify that mistake, but we can't very well. We're, we're proving very um, uh, adamant about staying in Syria. <laughs> and we can't very well get out of Iraq before we've gotten out of Syria, I don't think. 
Yeah, it seems like they just want to you know, stay there. Uh, you know, they're occupying some crucial areas and some, some oil production areas there in the Syria-Iraq exactly. border area. And, uh, of course, there's also that issue of the kind of the, the imperial lackeys in the region, the Gulf despots and so on, and the Israelis versus the forces that would like to have a more independent region led by Iran. And so that's kind of the geopolitical standoff there. But because it's taken a sort of a second seat now, maybe even a third seat to China and Russia, uh, the pivot to Asia and the pivot to Russia seems to have left the whole Middle East thing uh, by the wayside. And so I think that these kinds of rocket attacks that we're seeing in the rocket, you know, the resistance forces are getting better and better rockets all the time. The Iranians demonstrated the power and accuracy of their rockets when they retaliated for Suleimani's uh, dastardly assassination and the Yemeni freedom forces are raining down rockets on the Saudis and the Emiratis. The Hezbollah, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, Hezbollah's got an incredible rocket arsenal now. The Israelis are afraid. Well, of they Hezbollah. do. Yeah, Hez- Hezbollah, but but Yemen. Are yeah, they yeah, even the Yemenis are doing it. Are yeah. the drones ta- and the rockets taking off from? That's a long ways from the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, so the drone. I can't and rocket believe they technology. have that technology, but they seem yeah. to. Oh yeah, yeah. So that that See. technology is kind of. Evening the game here, it's you know the it's turning into a kind of you know asymmetrical warfare game, and it's, it's becoming a stalemate. And in the long run, everybody there is convinced that the Americans are on their way out, and so they're preparing for how to survive in the aftermath. And one one group, the independence forces, the axis of resistance or what have you, is kind of actively preparing and and trying to hasten the departure of the Americans, and then hopefully the Zionists as well. And then the other side. Is uh, is still in the 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 American camp, uh, milking it dry <laughs> before it leaves, and, and you know hoping that they can find a way to cut a deal with somebody else after the Americans leave. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's complicated, isn't it? Oh, the, the interesting sideline. Well, it's not a sideline. It's a main issue in the Ukraine thing and the Russia thing. Um, it's it, it occurred to me that. If Russia, if we, if NATO is trying to put troops on the border of Russia, uh, Russia could respond by putting missiles uh, close to our shores. They did it well, once they've, before. They've said, yeah, they're, they're saying they're going to bring their military into Cuba and Venezuela. Well, even Nicaragua. There was something about Nicaragua that the, um, I think it was the Nicaraguan saying their constitution allows foreign troops to uh, take up residence in their country. Uh, and did you see what Anthony Blinken's response uh, to that idea was? No, I didn't. He said, what we will it? react fiercely to <laughs> Fiercely? Oh, boy. Well, it wasn't that's, fiercely, that's but he was strongly. Let's say strongly. Okay. You know, we're complaining about the Russians uh, reacting strongly to NATO planting troops, uh, missiles all around them. Uh, and and all of a sudden, the, the reasonableness of the Russian position comes out when someone suggests the Russians put missiles close to us. No way! We will invade Cuba before we allow that. Wait, haven't we been through this before? Back in 1962. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's a. We still have that boycott on Cuba, so not much has changed there. Uh, right. 
Well, in 62, of course, the Russians were not that happy about American missiles in Turkey. Exactly. And that was part of the reason they were putting their missiles into Cuba. And the Cubans were gung-ho because the Cubans knew the Americans were dead set on invading and overthrowing uh, the regime. Right. So the Cubans, they they wanted those nuclear missiles and they wanted to have the buttons in their hands. And they actually at one point got them in their hands. And it's kind of a miracle that that didn't all end in a nuclear exchange. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, let's hope the miracles continue. But, you know, uh, history would suggest um, they won't continue forever. You build all these missiles, they're going to get used someday. And and these missiles are not like the good old wars where uh, two armies go out in some field and fight it out. This is uh, total warfare, and the civilians uh, take more of the brunt of it than the, the actual soldiers. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, is how have we avoided nuclear war this long? And of well, course, I think because superficial- it's, just, it's just so unimaginable, the destruction that would occur. Well, uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of assumption. But if you actually start looking at the details, you start to see, you know, re- realize that the people who've been in charge of these weapons, for the most part, have not really thought that way. Like if you read Ellsberg's book, the it was called the Doomsday Machine, I think. Uh, no, I haven't read it. Oh, it's it's just insane. I mean, it, it, Ellsberg was, uh, I think, tasked by the Rand Corporation with looking at nuclear command and control issues back in the 50s and early 60s. And so he did, and he discovered that it was worse than anybody could have imagined, that, you know, theoretically – the president was supposed to have the button in his nuclear briefcase and you can't, nobody can fire any nuclear weapons except the president, you know, only the president can authorize this. Otherwise no nuclear weapons could ever be fired. That's the theory. However, these uh, strategic geniuses in the Pentagon had said, well, wait a minute. What if the Russians managed to blow up Washington DC and there's no more president and then we'll be paralyzed and they win. So we have to figure out a way to deal with that contingency. So we're going to have this system for devolving the authority to fire nuclear weapons. And it goes down from the president. It goes down to the general. So if there's no president, we have this, this system that, that's going to enable the generals to fire these nuclear weapons. And if, and if they're out, then we're going to bring it on down to the local forces. And so basically, you know, everybody down to like the master sergeant at arms or something it has this ability to fire nuclear weapons. And they just need the code to be able to do it. And the code is being held by somebody else that they can easily get it from. And they often do. And so the reality was that there are like hundreds of people, you know, many of them probably pretty psychologically unstable, all these different military people stationed in American bases all over the place who were in a position if they wanted to, they could very easily launch nuclear weapons at Russia. And so uh, that, that's just you know, the least of it. So, then there's the doctrine behind it. The, the, the strategic doctrine in the 1950s was that if the U.S. Uh, began a shooting war of any kind with Russia, it was go- we were going to completely annihilate Russia and China, even if China had nothing to do with it. We were going to fire everything we had and kill the vast majority of the population of Russia, China, and to some, you know, to a lesser extent, the surrounding countries. That was the doctrine. Just immediate kill everybody. Well, that's that's the st- still the doctrine. I feel sure. Well, it's. I think it's actually been adjusted, but I don't think it's it's fixed. I think. <laughs> well, what was Ellsberg's uh, explanation for why we haven't uh, actually gone into a nuclear war so far? I, I think he he thinks it's just been incredible luck, uh, and and there've been yeah. a bunch of cases where it was you know so close, like in in Cuba, for example. 
during the 1962 missile crisis, the every one of Kennedy's top advisors wanted him to uh, invade Cuba. Now, the Russians had given the Cubans authority to shoot those nuclear missiles, and the Cubans were just itching to shoot them in American cities. And so had the U.S. actually attacked Cuba, uh, we would have lost, uh, at the very minimum, maybe a dozen uh, cities, mostly in the south and east region. Right. Uh, and that would have happened also if uh, a uh, Soviet subcommander had followed his orders. Uh, the Americans dropped depth, char- depth charges at uh, trying to target a Russian sub. This was at the height of the crisis, and the Russian sub was ordered to fire its nuclear missile. It, it thought that uh, nuclear war was underway, and if it had followed its orders, uh, it would have uh, go- gone ahead and launched a nuclear weapon, yeah. which would have probably triggered a nuclear war between Russia and uh, the United States. But this Russian commander uh, disobeyed the order and refused to fire. And if that, and, and I think there's another case also where a, a, in a different case, a separate case, a Russian commander in, uh, in Russia itself, uh, also was in a position where there appeared to be a nuclear attack on Russia. He was under orders to fire. Standard operating procedure was to fire and he chose not to. So uh, those are just two of this long list of dozens and dozens of near misses with nuclear well, war. One of, one of the near misses, I believe, and you probably know more about this than I do. Um, we thought the Russians had uh, fired the missiles that they were on their trajectory to hit the United States. And fortunately, some ri- someone, some genius figured out, oh, no, that's just the moon rising. Right. That was one of the many <laughs> false alarms. It was the moon. <laughs> well, I, it's, I can't believe I'm laughing about it because this is we could speculate all day as to how a war, a nuclear war might start, whether it starts with some little sideshow and escalates quickly or whether, you know, there's such an advantage to get the first shot off that that's uh, one nation thinks it can obliterate the other one before it can even respond. Um, but I think uh, I don't know whether you'd agree that uh, as long as we have the weapons, they will be you and we don't change fundamentally our relations, our politics, and I don't mean American politics, I mean geopolitics, I mean the way the uh, the international system is based, uh, rival nation states, that sort of thing, and have a truly international um, outlook, perspective. And uh, Without that, the, the, missile, the weapons are going to be used someday. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Although I think it, it would be possible in the meantime, you know, it's, let's say it's going to take some time to figure out a, a whole new system, in the meantime, the sane policy would be to negotiate um, and uh, in such a way as to try to ensure that there are no first strike advantages, uh, getting, you know, get rid of all incentives for first strike, all weapons capable of first strike. Uh, fi- in other words, if you had a commitment to greatly reducing the possibility of nuclear war, it would be possible to tweak the systems in place and you could keep sovereign nations, even sovereign nations with their nuclear weapon systems, and you could greatly reduce the chance of nuclear war. Well, uh, unfortunately, you're, you're, our, our policymakers don't want to do that. It's mind Of course not. No, they're, they're too terrified and in love with their weapons. Uh, you're familiar with that group that got a Nobel Peace Prize a few years back. Uh, that wants to ban nuclear weapons? I mean, literally, that's one way. Just get rid of them. Then they won't be used. 
Uh, yeah, that, you know, that's idea true. Of, of start treaties and this and that. Um, we've been trying that for the last 70 years. Uh, oh. maybe it's, maybe it's, a, that's why we've been able to avoid nuclear war. Uh, but, uh, uh, one of these days it's going to break down. And as long as those yeah. nuclear weapons are there, they will be used. You know, one of the problems is that they're getting more and more accurate. And that, so, oh, there's all sorts of, uh, in fact, I, I, I argue that, uh, nukes are, are old school. Uh, just think of the advantages, uh, the advances in electronics, in chemistry and biology in the last 70 years. Um, nukes are passe. Uh, we've, the people who are developing better ways to, to kill other people, uh, probably come up with something, uh, even better and, <laughs> <laughs> and equally destructive as nuclear weapons. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, biological wep- uh, weapons. Yeah, right. Well, we're in the middle of a likely, uh, you know, epidemic triggered by uh, biological weapons. So that's uh, that should be a topic on everybody's tongue. Instead, you know, we got this we, nonsense about oh, it just came from the bats and the pangolins, and uh, and or you know, from the, a the, Chinese lab. Yeah, uh, well, it, yeah, or it's got to be just the Chinese. Yeah. Right, but you would think that this would lead to a public outcry and demands for uh, shutting down the global biowar complex. Instead, well, it, 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 it would if, if people even considered the possibility that the virus came from our lab, uh, specifically the U.S. Army Bio Lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Uh, if I, we don't have to prove that, but just if people would accept that it's possible. Then I think there'd be a tremendous movement to to um, control this stuff before there is another uh, pandemic, even worse than than this one. Uh, but you can't, as far as I know, I'm the only person in the whole country who suggests that uh, it might have come out of Fort Detrick. Rand Paul came close the other day. He he didn't. He mentioned that we have bio labs, labs where gain of function research is performed, and probably on coronaviruses. Uh, but he didn't suggest that this particular coronavirus came out of Fort Detrick. But he did say that, that you know, uh, the next pandemic could be worse with all these biolabs doing gain-of-function research, and there ought to be some sort of international convention to control this. Uh, but he didn't specifically say, we really ought to find out what they're doing out there at Fort Detrick. And, and it's just possible that that virus came out of our own lab. Wouldn't that be ironic? Wouldn't that be unbelievable? And you would think that that's what everybody would be screaming for is an investigation to get the bottom of this. And, I know, but have you, you know, even even if there's only a one percent chance that this is a bioweapon, pointing the finger at Fort Detrick. Right. I mean, even if it was a small chance that this is a bioweapon, just that slight well, chance it, it should make everybody not, say, "Wait a minute, this this could be a lot worse." I mean, this you know whether or not this is a bioweapon. Uh, these the the bio warfare industry is preparing doom for everybody, and so we need to get this under control. But instead, uh, everybody's looked the other way. And and you know, ironically, just the other day, Jeremy Farrar, who's one of the suspects in the COVID uh, bioweapon episode, uh, made headlines by saying that these lab leak theories about the origin of COVID have quote put the world at risk of a new pandemic. So wait a minute. How, okay, so people who are saying this looks like a, a, a lab leak or a, a bioweapon, how are they putting the world at risk of a new pandemic? Well, Sir Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust, uh, he's a, one of the COVID, top COVID suspects, um, and he was also uh, one of the signatories on the early uh, letters that led to shutting down 
any kind of uh, investigation in the media about whether it could have been a bioweapon or a lab leak. Uh, so he says now that if we talk about it possibly being a bioweapon or a lab leak, we are actually going to be creating a new pandemic. How? Because we will be shutting the door to international cooperation with China in trying to stop animal pathogens from leaping into humans. So this talk about deflection. This guy is one of the criminals who unleashed COVID more likely than not. And that would explain why he has been so active in trying to convince everybody that this couldn't possibly be anything but a natural disease that just happened to jump from bats and pangolins into humans. Uh, don't even go there. Don't even think about it being a bioweapon or a lab leak, because if you do, there'll be another pandemic. It sounds like he's threatening us. It sounds like he's telling us that if we go after him, he and his friends are going to unleash something even worse than COVID. Well, his logic does sound twisted. Um, I think uh, one thing, uh, one important distinction we have to make uh, concerning bioweapons and biowarfare, I like to refer to Dr. Fauci as the Robert Oppenheimer of uh, the American uh, biowarfare program, Um, because I think he is. I think he knows what's going on out there. I I think that's an insult to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was kind of a thoughtful guy. You know, we, we consider those guys heroes, but they knew what they were doing. If we have people out at Fort Detrick that are working on weapons that can wipe out entire countries, um, you know, we would think, gee, they do, don't they have a conscience? Uh, uh, but uh, these guys knew what they were building back there when they were building the atomic bomb. Uh, so I'm not sure they're, they get a clean bill of health. Um, right. But uh, anyway, we have to distinguish between a bioweapons program and a biowarfare program. Bioweapons program is making uh, bioweapons, uh, and the weapons are for uh, um, attack. Uh, biowarfare, and this is under the Convention on on Control of Biological and Chemical Weapons, uh, is can be pre- preparing defenses against an attack on you. And of course, to prepared defenses, you have to come up with the pathogen that you think is likely to be inflicted on you. So that's how um, it's it's legal and it's sensible that these people would want to defend the country against a bioweapon, and that's that's part of biowarfare, and it's, and it's allowed under the convention. Um, um, but that that all is the temptation, if you're going ahead and making pathogens that you think the enemy might come up with, uh, gee, the temptation clearly could be, well, wow, we've got this neat thing, and, and we don't like these people over there, so uh, we could use this as a weapon. Anyway. Right. Well, well, it's uh, a perfect kind of, it could be a perfect anti-economy weapon, apparently. Exactly. And that's, that's, yeah, you can, you can devastate your enemy without them even knowing what happened. If well, Robert Cadlick, that you know, the guy Trump appointed as the biowar czar, uh, and just in time for suddenly China to lose its meat supply for you know the two or three years in a row, and then suddenly get hit by COVID. With the, you know, Robert with the Cadlick is a life, and, yeah, yeah, he's a lifelong advocate of using biological weapons to target uh, enemy economies in public. He says, that. yeah, I mean, well, he, I mean, it's a funny, the way he says it is there is, is a convention, you know, yeah, he's not saying he's not saying in public, oh, this is great. We should do it. What he's saying in public is that, oh, the, the development of biological weapons has reached the point that they will become these very powerful and perfect weapons for, uh, you know, for an adversary to, yeah. to target its adversary's economy, blah, blah, blah. Well, 
you're familiar with the project uh, for the new American century, the infamous neocon thing. Well, in there, they talk about uh, the development of uh, weapons based on genotype. In other words, it'll only kill Chinese. It won't kill uh, the Westerners. Yeah, and, and, and they say uh, that it, this, if su- they it will be a politically useful tool. Politic- yeah, politically useful tool. I mean, it's the definition of genocism, genocide, genocism. Oh, my. Yeah, those, those neocons. I am. Gen- <laughs> it's a definition. And these guys are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're working on that. Uh, they didn't say we're working I mean, on it. Who needs the elders of Zion when you've got the neocons? <laughs> or or Hitler coming back to life. Uh, yeah. Or Stalin, for that matter. Um, it's it's a scary little world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You start, you know, looking between the you know the cracks into what's going on in some of these areas, and and certainly the you know germ warfare and so on is one of those. Uh, I you know on some of the germ warfare books that I've read that have uh, kind of terrified me in the way that reading books on, on nuclear warfare nuclear strategy and planning you know got to me back when i was a teenager you know as i when i was young i i my life was kind of you know turned inside out by first discovering that you know john kennedy had been killed in a coup d'etat and the cia looked like the suspects Mm -hmm. i figured that out you know when i was like 15 16 or something like that and uh and, and of course vietnam figuring out that you know vietnam was was a hideous genocidal uh, you know, U.S. massacre of people around the world for, you know, for no good reason and so on. But then the, looking into the nuclear weapons at that time uh, really got to me. It was just insane the way that we had tolerated this development of, uh, of nuclear weapons pointed at the heads of pretty much everybody in the world. Well, today, now, I, you know, actually, even a little before COVID, I started looking into this stuff, you know, reading up on, on Lyme disease, which probably escaped from a U.S. lab. And uh, lately I've read uh, Plague Wars by uh, Mangold and Goldberg, uh, which mostly is looking at U.S. adversaries uh, as the problem, you know, exposing uh, the Russian germ warfare program during the Cold War, the way the Russians apparently lied about it. And, you know, had, the Russians had stuffed IB, ICBMs full of these horrific uh, pathogens. And they were actually going to probably kill more people with their pathogens than with their nukes in the event of war with the U.S., well, according I to think, that book. Yeah. I think that's likely to, you know, because the enemy, you know, is devastated and they don't have any reason to. Well, they have a reason, but if they don't know that we're responsible for their misery, uh, they're not really um, entitled to respond in kind. Um and we've eliminated an enemy um, peacefully. <laughs> Remember the neutron bomb? Oh, yeah. It kills it people, kills leaves people, buildings leaves intact. buildings intact. Whatever happened to that thing? I bet we've got one. I bet we got thousands oh, of them. Oh, yeah. Oh. Apparently the latest generation of nukes uh, includes these bombs that can function as neutron bombs, or you can sort of dial them up to larger explosions. Exactly. You can, you, you put, yeah, you can it change the type of energy that they uh, explode with. Uh, and then you can even, oh, you know, God. direct you it. Ma- imagine yeah. what directed energy weapons they might be coming up with. Uh, right. Speaking speaking of Lyme, um, I don't know whether you're aware of uh, Chris Smith, Congressman Chris Smith, and his attempt to have the government reveal uh, what went on at the Plum Island Bio Lab on Long Island, right across from Lyme, Connecticut. Um, no, but I certainly would support that. Uh, well, there's that, a book, some, it, some guy it, I think who worked there. 
has said, has more than suggested, pretty much said that uh, Lyme disease came out of that lab. They were working on uh, uh, how to use ticks as vectors, how to use ticks to, to spread disease. And some escaped, uh, maybe infected deer on Long Island who swam across <laughs> to uh, Connecticut. Uh, anyway, I don't know. There's a book out there on that. I, I don't know the title. But Chris Smith, uh, in that, that's, it's, called, it's called "Bitten: The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons" by Chris Newby, which very good. Uh, yeah, it includes the confession uh, of uh, Willie Bergdorfer, you know, whose name yeah. is on yeah, the that's, that's the guy. Right? I, yeah, yeah, he, he actually confessed that he had been involved in in making this horrible scourge. Well, just a couple of months before COVID hit. Uh, Chris Smith, who's a congressman from New Jersey and, and who read that book, uh, had gotten put an amendment put into the National Defense Authorization Act for 2019 or in July of 2019 uh, that uh, would require the Pentagon to reveal uh, what was going on at the Plum Island lab. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the Senate did not include that in the final NDAA. And now... He, he has subsequently the next year and, and currently is he put an amendment in um, that uh, required the GAO, the general accounting office or government accounting office, uh, to uh, tell uh, reveal what they know about the Plum, Plum Island lab. And, you know, these things are not going to get anywhere um, as long as people are wondering where the, the SARS virus came from, because uh, if it if. Lyme disease can have leaked from Plum Island. People might think, well, gee, we have other bio labs. Could, could something have leaked from there? Uh, and they might start asking embarrassing questions. Yeah, well, these folks uh, in the biological weapons community, uh, they don't want us to be poking around in, in their closets because there's a lot of bad stuff there. And, and if people actually knew just, you know, and, and probably what, you know, what, what people like me, I've read maybe, you know, half a dozen books or maybe a little more than that on the subject. If people knew the stuff that I've learned by reading these books, I, there would be mass outrage and everybody would be convinced that COVID probably came from this sort of thing too. But they, they're stonewalling. You know, there's a, this book, Baseless by Nicholson Baker. Baker was one of the ones who helped um, bring this lab leak hypothesis for COVID back into the mainstream and, you know, force social media to let us talk about it. <laughs> for a while, you would get banned while, from talking yeah. about it. But thanks. Well, I think, Nicholson. I think that'll stick around because we want to blame China. Right, Long right. Exactly. Trump is that, that's the China virus, huh? Yeah, yeah that, that's why they the social media decided to, you know, why the authorities said it was okay. Now you can talk yeah. about it. It's as long they as you only directed at the at the Wuhan lab. Exactly. But anyway, <laughs> Nicholson Baker's book, Baseless. Labs. Yeah, Baker points out that that the uh, the subtitle is "My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act." And he's, you know, he's going after all of these uh, secrets ar around bioweapons and biological warfare, such as this, you know, U.S. use of biological warfare in the Korean War, and on and on and on. Against Cuba, against Cuba, Cuba against fever. Yep, against Eastern Europe and Russia probably as well. Yeah, uh, we lost our own a big pile, big portion of our own wheat crop with this wheat rust, uh, weaponized wheat rust that we developed to go after Eastern Europe and Russia. Oh, I hadn't and, heard about that one. Yep, that was one of the blowback episodes. Uh, and so anyway, the, these uh, germ war criminals 
and their enablers uh, are really uh, not they're, they're not responding to these FOIA requests like like uh, oh, God, and, oh, no. and people researching this, they, they file FOIA Freedom of Information Act requests and they just get ignored. And and, you know, some, and then they'll be like, okay, we're looking into this. You know, you'll hear from us later. And, and years and years and decades go by. Uh, and it, the law says they have to release this material, but the government doesn't follow the law. No, and no. Baker is throwing up his hands, saying, "What what can we do about this?" Uh, um, there was a, I ran across a wonderful chronology of of leaks from bio labs, not just in this country, but all over the world. And the, you know, they're Dozens of them over the years, uh, some with uh, major consequences. Uh, I wish I had it, could cite it, but uh, yeah, just just in terms of leaks, forget about. Yeah, there's a good book about that called "Germs Gone Wild." "Germs Gone Wild" by Kenneth King covers uh-huh. uh, a lot of the mishaps as this biowar complex exploded uh, after the anthrax attack, right? 9/11 anthrax. You know, right. it, that, it was U.S. military anthrax, and so we should have gone after those people in our own biowar community. Instead, we uh, gave them like 800% more funding overnight. And so they built lots more level four labs all over the place, and many of those labs have been leaking. So it's it's kind of amazing that we're uh, we're still here to talk about this, and the only problem we've had is COVID, because it could have been a lot worse. Oh, it, and it maybe next time if we don't bring this under control. And in that regard... Um, you know, even if Rand Paul gets his way and somehow they get all the countries together and they've already come, come up with a convention against biological and chemical weapons, but, you know, they need a new one, apparently, uh, that with, with real um, enforcement uh, principles. But even if they do, it's well to remember that the use of poison gas was banned uh, by uh, the major powers of Europe in 1907. And what were they doing 10 years later, using poison gas on each other? So even if the group that wants to get rid of nuclear weapons succeeds, uh, who knows what might who might be having a few left somewhere uh, or be working on them still. Or, yeah, we're going to need a real kind of a, a revolutionary change in people's spirituality and yeah. consciousness, I think, before well, we can we do. get a handle I, on these I problems. Agree. I agree. I wish I wish I was the prophet and could uh, <laughs> not not. I didn't mean Muhammad by that. I meant any prophet um, uh, and could <laughs> have the world uh, accept my dictates, but that's not likely to happen. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully there is someone out there who can lead a spiritual awakening and transformation. Yeah. And I, you know, I hope it'll be the right person. You know, there are there are some you know, end times prophecies yeah, saying I, they're going to be deceivers. Uh, and certainly there there are plenty of deceivers in power right now uh, but but ultimately you know the the you know the, you know them by their deeds and so when they're good people you know doing good things uh probably we can have faith uh you know based on on what they're doing um well I, even I, if i i i think they're normal people on both sides mm-hmm. uh they get stuck in in uh, circumstances uh, for instance, um, the Japanese uh, before World War II knew that if they went with, to war with the United States, they would lose, at least in a long war. So, but, but they had already committed themselves. You know, they'd been following this imperialistic policy for 
for 30 years. They'd taken Manchuria. They'd invaded China. Um, and we, we demanded that they leave China. And they thought if we do that, the Japanese people will hang us after all the soldiers have been killed and all the money we've spent on this. Yeah, state. so, so, they, so they, they couldn't stop. They you couldn't know. stop. They had yeah. to hope that a short war, like a Pearl Harbor, attack of Pearl Harbor, would, would cause us to negotiate. Well, we're sort of in the same Major position. miscalculation I there. Yeah. I think yeah, hopefully it looks like there could be such mis- miscalculations going on right now with Ukraine. Let's, uh, let's hope and pray not. Thank you, Ken Meyer, for it. It's always you good bet. talking to you. At the end of the hour, uh, keep up the great work. I, I really appreciate getting your commentary, so keep it up. Uh, okay, thanks. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Ken Meyer, for it. Let them do it. Broadcasting. Yeah,